Hello, Psychologia listeners. Today's episode is a little different. Last Halloween, we set aside our usual fare in favor of a reading of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's gothic classic, The Yellow Wallpaper. It was one of our favorite episodes of the season, so this year we've decided to bring you another horror classic with a psychological undercurrent, one so famous that it's nearly synonymous with the horror genre, and 176 years after it was written, it is still read and taught and shared around the world. Today, we bring you The Tell-Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. Edgar Allan Poe was born on January 19, 1809, in Boston, Massachusetts. His parents, David and Elizabeth, were both performers, and he had two siblings, Henry and Rosalie. When Edgar was a baby, his parents separated, and the three children went to live with their mother. But in 1811, when he was just two years old, Elizabeth died, and the siblings were split up. Henry went to his grandparents, but Edgar and Rosalie were adopted by two different families. Edgar's adoptive parents were named John and Francis Allen, and they were well off. John was a successful tobacco merchant, and the Allens made sure that Edgar had a good education. At the age of six, he was sent to England to study for five years, and he learned French and Latin, as well as history and math. He returned to the States for the end of his secondary education, and in 1826, at the age of 17, he enrolled in the University of Virginia. Things began to go downhill from here. Edgar didn't fare well in college, and he started to drink heavily and gamble all the money he could get his hands on. John Allen was somewhat tight-fisted and paid for only one-third of his tuition, so Edgar was quickly in deep debt. He gambled more and more, trying to raise the funds he needed to stay in school, but within a year he had to drop out. Now 18, he was shunned by the Allens, out of money, humiliated, and without any job experience or skills. Feeling completely out of options, Edgar went back to Boston and joined the U.S. Army. He did well in the military and quickly rose to the rank of Sergeant Major. In 1829, Francis Allen died, and John attempted to mend his relationship with Edgar, going so far as to sign his application to West Point. During this time, Edgar lived with his grandmother, aunt, brother Henry, and cousin, Virginia. He started at West Point in 1830, but once again he was forced to drop out when he couldn't raise the tuition or get it from John Allen. Throughout these years, Edgar Allan Poe had been writing. 
1831, some of his poetry was published in New York. He submitted short stories to many magazines and received many rejections, but it seemed that he had finally found his calling. He had no money, no friends, no job, but he was determined to make this his new life work. He wrote to John Allen and begged him for money, but none came. He continued to write, he continued to submit, and when Allen died in 1834, he didn't even mention Edgar in his will. In 1835, Poe wrote a story called The Manuscript Found in a Bottle and submitted it to a short story contest. He won. This led to a job as a newspaper editor at the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, and things began to fall into place. He moved his aunt and his young cousin Virginia to Richmond and soon proposed marriage to his cousin. In a life full of drama and creepy stories, this is one of the most enduring, uncomfortable facts. When the two were married in 1836, she was 13 and he was 27. Poe did well as an editor and managed to make the Southern Literary Messenger the most popular magazine in the South. He brought its circulation up from 500 to 3,500 households, but he felt like he wasn't paid well enough, so in 1836 he quit and went to New York in 1837. He didn't find success there, so in 1838 he moved to Philadelphia. In 1839 he published his first collection of short stories, Tales of the Grotesque and Arabesque. He made no money from the project, but 20 copies were printed. In 1840, Poe became the editor of Graham's Magazine, and in 1841, he would publish a story in that magazine that changed the course of literary history. Today, if one is asked about the beginnings of the modern detective story, there is only one title that should come to mind, The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Poe called it a tale of ratiocination from the French word ratiocination, meaning the activity or process of reasoning, and it gave birth to a new genre that has become one of today's most popular. The story centers on C. Auguste Dupin, a Parisian man who solves the mystery of the brutal killing of two women. There are many witnesses who claim to have heard the murder, but no one can agree what language the murderer was speaking. Dupin collects a hair at the scene, and the mystery deepens when he determines that it isn't human. Dupin is considered the world's first fictional detective, and his reasoning and deduction are traits that we see again and again in subsequent detectives, Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot being two of the most famous examples. Dupin's story is even told in the voice of his close friend, who narrates the events, just like Watson would later do for Holmes. After two years, and despite once again massively elevating circulation numbers, this time from 5,000 to 35,000, Poe left Graham's magazine in 1842, saying that he wanted to start his own publication. He tried to start a magazine called The Stylus, but it failed. He published some more of his short stories in 1843, but they didn't sell well. His story, The Gold Bug, won him $100, but he was always barely eking by, barely making enough money to take care of his family, barely making ends meet. In January of 1843, the story we're reading today 
was published in the inaugural issue of The Pioneer, a literary and critical magazine based in Boston. Poe was probably paid about $10 for it, and it was republished several more times throughout his life. In 1844, he moved back to New York and became an editor of the Broadway Journal until it ran out of money in 1846, and he was jobless again. During this window, he wrote and published arguably his most famous poem, The Raven, which did achieve some real success very quickly, but all that was overshadowed by what happened next. Virginia's health began to fade, and Edgar was deeply worried. She got worse and worse until it was clear that nothing could be done. Then, ten days after his birthday, in 1847, she died of tuberculosis. She was just 24. Poe fell apart. He suffered from a breakdown that racked his health and left him sick for almost a year. Trying to pull the pieces of his life back together, he went to Richmond in 1849 and joined the Sons of Temperance, trying to stop drinking and get his health in order. He fell in love again, this time with a childhood friend, Elmira Royster Shelton, and planned to marry her in October. On September 27, 1849, Poe left Richmond and headed back to New York. Along the way, he stopped in Philadelphia to visit a friend, then left for the city on September 30th. According to the numerous legends that have sprung up around this story, he supposedly took the wrong train and wound up in Baltimore. Three days later, on October 3rd, he was found at a public house on East Lombard Street called Gunner's Hall. He was a total wreck, and he had to be taken straight to the hospital. He was in and out of consciousness and couldn't explain what had happened to him or where he had been. He never fully woke up again. On Sunday, October 7, 1849, Edgar Allan Poe died at the age of 40. And the questions surrounding exactly what befell him in those last days have never been answered. Was he attacked, mugged, targeted for some reason? Did he have alcohol poisoning or rabies? At this point, it seems like we will never have a clear answer, and the man who brought us mystery stories took the final one to his grave. Just days after his death, Poe's literary rival Rufus Griswold wrote a vicious obituary of the author, hoping to discredit him in death and take revenge for the criticism Poe had lobbed at him during his lifetime. Griswold called Poe little better than a carping grammarian and said he had only the hard wish to succeed, not shine, not serve, but succeed, that he might have the right to despise a world which galled his self-conceit. He followed this harsh obituary up with a biography that called Poe a drunk, a womanizer, and a friendless man with no morals. It was such a violent attempt at a takedown that it wound up having the exact opposite effect of its intention. After the book came out, Poe's work received more acclaim than it had ever gotten in his lifetime. To this day, Griswold, on the other hand, is only remembered when he is remembered as Poe's first biographer. As you are about to hear, 
The Telltale Heart is a deeply felt, sensitive portrayal of great psychological strain. It is a study of terror, the great weight of guilt, and the desperate need to prove that we are sane, no matter what we do. Over the years, many people have tried to apply psychological profiling and modern reasoning to the voice of the mysterious narrator, saying he, or she, may be schizophrenic, a term that didn't exist when this was written in 1843, or clinically paranoid, or having a psychotic break. But I think for today, it's best to just listen and experience the story the way it was written. So, without further ado, we bring you The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I have been and am. Why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in heaven and in earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the week before I killed him. Every night about midnight I turned the latch of his door and opened it oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, 
I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. For I found the eye always closed, and it was so simple to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but the evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by his name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now, you may think I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and when I was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon a tinned fastening, the old man sprung up in bed crying out, Who's there? I kept still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lay down. He was still sitting up in that bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when the world slept, it has swelled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. The terrors that distracted me. When I say I knew it well, I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them costless, but he could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. 
or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these superstitions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw nor heard to feel, the presence of my head within the room. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a yell, I threw upon the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the beat, the heart beat, on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no potion. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out. No stain of any kind, no blood splot, whatever. I had been too weary for that. A tub had caught it all. <laughs> uh. 
When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the door. I went down to open with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigue, while I myself in the wild of my audacity of my perfect triumph placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat, and still they chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was within my own ears. No doubt now I grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. And why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and I grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they died not? Almighty God, no. No, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypothetical smiles no longer. 
I felt that I must scream or die, and now again. Hark louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more, I admit the deed. Tear up the planks, here. Here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. Our guest narrator today was Mario Rivera. If you like what we do, please tell people about us any way you can. Follow us on social media at Psychologia Podcast or visit our website for links to source materials and to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.